to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going? I am sulking a bit, Ed, because I was meant <clears throat> to be in Prague this weekend, and I've never uh... been to Prague before. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, fine. But I've managed to distract myself quite brilliantly by watching late 90s early noughties Lindsay Lohan Disney films for the first time mm-hmm. and how do, they're so fucked Ed <laughs> I mean I I think there's something about knowing about the premise of the parent trap in particular where mm. I'm like okay that sounds nuts but the way that it to watch it actually executed oh yeah no we just divorced and never told you about the existence of your identical twin sister mm, and whenever yeah. it's mentioned everyone's like there's no explanation it's just like that sucks yeah it does let's continue <laughs> they're all awful people apart from chessie and martin i would mm-hmm. i would die for them and freaky friday isn't much better there's a lot of kind of like freudian stuff with the stepfather which again yeah. just reminded me of one of the greatest sketches ever which is of course john mulaney's switcheroo from snl <laughs> and i was like <laughs> we're on the border of focusing exclusively on the sexual ramifications of this body swap but jamie lee curtis is cracking so it's just so icky ed how is it meant to be family friendly i think it's it's one of those things where a premise that kind of skated by when it was done in the 70s or yeah 70s i think was when the first one came out and same with the parent trap where it's like the 60s where it's just kind of everyone's just been like ah it's just fun who cares <laughs> when you try and um when you try and set it in a modern context and everyone's like a little more media literate and also just like where the age range that you're aiming for is perhaps a little higher certainly in the case of like freaky friday where uh it's kind of aimed at sort of like teens who know what sex is and will inevitably think about that (laughs) as opposed to something where it's kind of like ah this is you know for for young kids and you know it gives the parents a little bit of relief you know like of the the earlier versions probably goes a long way to explaining why just like the basic premise of the premises of those movies end up feeling really really weird um in a modern context yeah i think there's something about trying to sort of reach for something i don't know a bit fantastical or even if it were animated i'd feel differently about it i've never mm. seen I've, I've not seen either of the originals so there's Haley mills and the parent trap in the 60s and then it's jodie foster in freaky friday yeah. i didn't realize I think the same year she made Taxi Driver, maybe, or very close to it, is like just at the cusp of becoming like having a uh, uh, an older, more likely to try and assassinate a president audience. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, people say it's Taxi Driver, but like from what I saw on Freaky Friday, the Taxi Driver is tame. Like <laughs> that's the one that's gonna. It's just oh my god, and they're just. I don't understand who they're for, Ed, because like you said, in terms of like that demographic. But they're both like nearly like the 98 and the 2003 Parent Trap and Freaky Friday, um, respectively. Both just over two hours long. They're long films. Yeah. And they don't feel like kids' films. 
the parent trap at times feels like something off of um, the infomercials on Adult Swim. <laughs> that kind of slightly hazy. It just felt really sinister in that mm. in that way that you can kind of go down certain like YouTube craft videos that have been developed through algorithms. Like right, it's yeah. like bigger than before. You remember that egg? <laughs> remember when that egg was the weirdest thing in the world? Oh, yeah. I, I yearn for those halcyon days. But yeah, so I'm I'm mainly just like baffled by <laughs> Lindsay Lohan outfits, and I don't blame her at all for you know, ev- like there is nothing shocking about what came after for her, given that at such an early age she was in these completely demented <laughs> cruel premises how are you red yeah i'm good uh i just also say the thing that i always remember about the 98 version of parent trap is how it has a day a deus ex machina ending that like only could be pulled off at that point in time which is them arriving home to discover that bill paxton no pullman well it's um it's dennis quaid dennis quaid sorry Dennis, yeah, Dennis Quaid and uh, American Lindsay Lohan have beat them home because they grabbed a Concorde, which is like <laughs> very much not something that you could do like even just like two years later or whenever it was that Concorde stopped running. <laughs> yeah, so that's like one of the more the one of those things that weirdly dates a film in a way that you wouldn't really expect. But yeah. yeah, there's like people in there like. 20 like early 20s now if you told them like oh yeah people used to regularly take supersonic flights and it took like three hours to get from uh from france to new york it'd be like what the hell are you talking about that doesn't seem like something that would happen or something that would stop happening like it seems like something that people would keep doing Mm. Um, but yeah turns out they are really expensive and really dangerous so yes i'm i'm fine in terms of uh culture this week i have I, I had a, a couple of days where I watched really heavy art film stuff that had been on my to watch list for a long time. Um, I finished watching An Elephant Sitting Still, which is a Chinese movie that came out in 2018 in China and I think like everywhere else in the world last year because it was on everyone's best of the year list, which is a fantastic film. It's about four hours long, which is why it took me a long time to watch it. I was ended up watching it in installments and it is the most in some ways the most sad and depressing episode of Seinfeld ever because it's a story a film of multi-stranded stories they're all kind of happening separately you know like all these people in this incredibly dilapidated and and like uh depressed industrial town in in China that is kind of it's the real sense of a town that is is decaying and dying you know all, everywhere looks really bad people are moving away the local school's about to close down and all this kind of like stuff in the background but the main story focuses on a young boy who gets into a fight with another student and ends up pushing him down the stairs so he kind of goes on the run because he's afraid of what's going to happen to him if um, the guy's brother finds out the brother uh, is searching for him but also he is racked with guilt because he had had an affair with his best friend's wife and the friend caught them and then he jumped out a window and killed himself there's uh, an old man whose son and daughter-in-law are preparing to ship him off to a uh, old folks home so that they can move to a place with a better school district and he is fighting it but then his beloved dog ends up being killed by another dog and he kind of has no reason left not to go to it and then 
uh, a girl who is has befriended the dean of the local school but is kind of everyone thinks they're having an affair and it kind of has all these stories that are all unfolding at their own time and kind of uh their own pace and as the story goes along they kind of slowly converge over the course of this day at the uh train station where they all decide that they're going to go to this other town that has a uh a circus that is renowned for having a uh or a zoo maybe one of the two which has an elephant that only sits still and doesn't do anything. So it's not just a clever title. But there is a... It's got a wonderful sense of place to it. It's really, really depressing in places. <laughs> like, as the plot description will um, attest. But it's really expertly put together um, in terms of the ways in which those stories occasionally overlap with each other and the ways in which like various plot lines kind of envelop and and resolve themselves and there is just like there's a there's a real even though it's a, a long film and it unfolds fairly slowly there is a, like a real tension to it the question of are you know is the is the young kid uh gonna get caught is he gonna be able to you know get to the train on time you know what's gonna happen with this old man you know and you know because he ends up tangling with some local kind of thugs at one point who um, are obviously represent a ter- terrible danger to his life and it's just it's very rich it's a very rich movie and I found the last half hour in particular which is pretty much entirely wordless and is just kind of them um, on a journey together like the, the, the characters on a journey together to be this like really remarkable and haunting uh, piece of cinema that, like unlike anything I've seen in ages so I was really glad that I kind of sat down and watched all of it because mm. yeah even though it was very, very demanding um, on the emotions, I found it to be a very rewarding experience. And then I also watched uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror, which was one of the few Tarkovsky films I've never seen before. And it's kind of a very personal movie that he made that's kind of a, him ruminating on his own life and his relationship with his parents, told in like a non linear style. It's kind of his uh, Tree of Life or um, In Search of Lost Time. Mm so like that I found that to be like really beautiful and very distinct from a lot of his other movies because I think it's his shortest movie not counting like actual short films he made it's just over an hour and 40 minutes long and it moves at a fairly quick pace because obviously it's jumping around in all these different time periods so unlike something like um, Stalker or Solaris where you're watching a very long movie that kind of lingers for a long time it's something that's kind of keeps moving so it was really interesting seeing him make something that was obviously so important to him and so key to his development as an artist but which also felt so distinctive from everything else that he was doing mm. uh, and then towards the end of the week I just started watching uh, a bunch of George Miller movies that I'd never seen before uh, some of which we'll probably discuss in the, the main topic but the one that I was um most uh, excited by when I was watching it to, to kind of finally see it and to be so surprised by was The Witches, Witches of Eastwick which uh, I I had never seen before I did not even know that it was actually about real witches I just assumed <laughs> that it was a symbolic title and that it was just kind of like a cool phantasmagorical title for a, uh, a book as opposed to about actual witches but uh, I thought that was a wonderful movie I had a real blast with it it's so much fun. I saw it when I was far too young. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it taught me a lot. Um, but yes, it is about actual witches. <laughs> which, uh, which, which, which. Yeah, it's 
it's totally grotesque. I was saying to you, Ed, like thinking back on it, there's something kind of Julia Davis about it that it's mm. it's like so grotesque as to be camp. Like yes. like it goes right back round. It's just everything is kind of up to here. Oh my god, the hair! Like <laughs> that that Cher, Sarandon, and Pfeiffer all have the same hair but in different colours. <laughs> That's how you yeah. tell them apart. But oh, the volume. Yeah, it's uh, it, and also it's so fun seeing um, a movie like a clearly mainstream comedy that was put out by a Hollywood studio that was very successful at the time. I think it was like one of the top ten grossing movies in the US the year that it came out. Yeah. That is just so, just so horny and just so <laughs> cl- clearly obsessed with sex and with the. Uh, the centrality of sex to its storytelling because so much of it is about Jack Nicholson as, I mean, maybe not the devil, but certainly a devil um, (laughs) coming to town and seducing these three witches and it has so many moments in it that are really kind of packed with sexual energy, in particular different kinds of sexual energy, like his seduction of, of Cher where he is kind of just like writhing on the bed in front of her and very just like confrontatively just being like, yes, I'm thinking very much about fucking you (laughs) and just being like, (laughs) and her turning away and just being like, oh, this is so disgusting, but also kind of being into it. Um, it, And then the scene where he like teaches um, Susan Sarandon how to improve her bowing on her cello where he kind of like reaches down and kind of like parts her legs to like give her a different position on the cello and then she starts playing it and then it bursts into fire as she's kind of in orgiastic glee (laughs) it's like it's so over the top but it's so like it's 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 expressive in the best way that a lot of george miller movies is where he's getting at something that is very real and very very human but doing it in a way that is just so kind of lurid uh, in in much the same way as like the violence in the Mad Max movies is has that kind of just like over the top thing of saying like how can I go bigger with this yeah visceral lurid is such a good word for his work and like I think there's something sort of knowing but in a kind of I think it's interesting because there's kind of like embarrassment or shame around desire involved in that like just thinking about that moment with Cher like mm-hmm. And there's something about the appeal of going for something that is so over the top. Like it's yeah. it, it's kind of a relief, but you're also like, why why am I doing this? Um, mm-hmm. And that we don't really have many. I mean, you know, the erotic thriller was such a big thing in the '80s, but we don't yeah. we don't really have the kind of like jokey because I think like Death Becomes Her is kind of in that same bracket mm. for me. Something that's like so over the top as an idea and like really high concept but essentially quite like tongue in cheek I think A Simple Favour is the closest I've got to it recently mm-hmm. such an enjoyable such an enjoyable flick guys like go for it and this idea of being like you know seduced or hoodwinked or that kind of but yeah Witches of Eastwick is just possibly the most 80s thing <laughs> oh man I want to watch it now <laughs> uh, yeah that's an early recommendation uh, for anyone who hasn't seen The Witches of Eastwick it's a hell of a good time and uh, yeah lots of fun interesting supporting characters in it uh, I particularly I liked seeing Richard Jenkins in it as 
basically the character Richard Jenkins always <laughs> plays. Um, and being like, oh yeah, he's just been kind of doing that thing for 20, well, more than 30 years at this point. And just at some point, pe- someone said, hey, let's nominate him for an Oscar. Why not? <laughs> the thing he's very good at. Uh, but yeah, so I watched that. And then uh, a movie that I think is definitely pertains to the subject um, that we'll be discussing, I think we should yeah, probably just jump right on into it, was the George Miller movie Lorenzo's Oil, which is a movie I hadn't seen. And I only knew from a somewhat, mainly kind of as a joke, literally as a joke in the little remembered Simon Pegg, Nick Frost vehicle, Paul, where um, Jason Bateman's character is named Lorenzo Zoil. Um, <laughs> so silly. <laughs> it's a very silly name. So silly. They got paid for that. It's so silly. <laughs> but I just knew it as a movie that was big in, or well, I say big, it was a movie that I remembered my mum liking when she saw it in the 90s and that people generally had it in that. It, for me, it was in that kind of category of movies that maybe got nominated for an Oscar or two and but generally were like not something that people seem to remember and not talk about too much and in my head it's kind of blurred with something like Captain Corelli's Mandolin I don't know why but it's just like <laughs> uh, it's just kind of the Italian collection uh, connection I imagine um, oh wait is Captain Corelli in Greece? yes I don't know um, Mediterranean connection um, yes it's also <laughs> there with Robert Altman's Popeye because it's shot in Malta because we're all the same movie to me but um, yeah so like it was just kind of a movie that I never really thought about and then the uh, Blank Check podcast, a podcast that I'm a big fan of, has been doing a mini-series on George Miller, and they've just hit the run of movies that of his that I had never seen, so that's why I watched Witches of Eastwick, and I watched Lorenzo's Oil, because they, their episode on it came out today. And um, I was just really, really impressed by it. I was really blown away by it. I think it's such a cut above all of those kind of based-on-true-life um, fantastical stories of ordinary heroism stories that the Oscars uh, truck in so much and which are often just so bland or so just completely lacking in nuance like Lorenzo's Oil is a movie that has tremendous nuance where it's about this couple whose young boy becomes diagnosed with a condition called ALD which is a degenerative disease that affects young boys and usually um, results in death within two years of diagnosis and it's all about how they, who are a real life, um, a re- real life um, couple, started researching possible treatments and ended up coming up with their own uh, treatment for the condition called, which they called Lorenzo's oil after their their son who was treated with it. And it's kind of a wonderful process movie because they're constantly just like, like so much of the movie is Nick Nolte kind of in a library reading about just like um, long chain amino acids and lipids and trying to find some explanation for why this particular enzyme is, you know, slowly killing his son and is killing so many other boys as well. And it's also just like a really good movie about grief. And one of the things that's striking about it is the performances in it are... Off, are kind of like the things that were most striking for me but are the things that are most under-discussed about the movie uh, if it's discussed at all and that's kind of what we wanted to talk about um, this week was about undervalued or underrated performers or performances and Lorenzo's Oil I think has two performances in it that really kind of 
points to the ways in which movies can uh, performances can be underrated by people. On the one hand, you have Nick Nolte, who's doing this very expressive performance where he's got an Italian accent, and he is that you know. There's one scene where he's reading cases of all these other uh, boys who have died from the disease, and he is the, the the scene is of just his eyes on a page, and then words kind of overlaid on it, like coma, went blind, death, all these things that he's learning about, and then him collapsing on stairs just like so overwhelmed by grief at the thought about what his son is going to go through with this disease and then at the other extreme you have Susan Sarandon as the mother who was nominated for an Oscar for it but I think uh, it seems to be more kind of because she was a respected actress than necessarily because the film had like a huge amount of support behind it as often happens at the Oscars and I feel like her performance is so Restrained, but not in kind of like the way where it's like, oh, it looks like they're not doing anything, so therefore they're really trying hard. It's more kind of like her realising that the character is someone who is trying so hard to keep it together and really, at times, really struggling with it, you know, only occasionally letting it out. And I feel like as a kind of a starting point, I think those are the two kinds of performances that can be undervalued. Like if a performance is really big, people can dismiss it as just someone being like hammy or they're just going over the top and if a movie is too small people can be just kind of like oh they're not doing anything and like as, as a starting point I've all looked those were it was interesting to see those two kinds of performances in one movie and how well they uh, they complement each other that's nice because you do get that a lot where it's a criticism that's often found in like script writing where characters mm. all seem to speak with one voice and that's the voice of the writer Joss Whedon yeah. and mm-hmm. with acting it can be the same um, so it's nice that you could I think there are more films where everything kind of you can have more variety and you can see how it all comes together and actually makes for a richer world it's not tonally discordant I've mm-hmm. been watching devs recently and I've been finding that really tricky in terms of performances because it feels incredibly monotonous and everyone's the same also run where mm-hmm. it's kind of like you you two are really unbearable <laughs> and clearly perfect for each <laughs> other and this kind of snarky against the world stuff which I think maybe if I keep watching it it'll come round but I don't know it just feels a bit too it's a bit too clever clever we're we're, we're so special for me at the moment mm-hmm. but enough of that in terms of performances that I think are underrated when I started thinking about this really everything on my list is mainly it's women in comedic roles mm-hmm. I have been re-watching right, Sex yeah. and the City thanks for asking um, and the thing that <laughs> the thing that really strikes me about it is how good Sarah Jessica Parker and Cynthia Nixon are in it um, mm, and, I'm, yeah. and I'm talking I'm talking uh, the TV. The, the films are not canon. They are um, <laughs> really regrettable <laughs> decisions made. They're, by everyone. they're in legends. They're in, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the TV series does have moments of like, like watching Miranda and Carrie. It feels like a real friendship, and I think it managed mm-hmm, to. Yeah. That series really did manage to kind of before it tipped into kind of crazy aspiration and you know the the costumes just became about more who could be seen and more outlandish rather than a really amazing expression of 
each of the characters. The acting is really great. I think Sarah Jessica Parker manages to be like cute and klutzy and smart and very put together all at once, mm-hmm. which is very hard to do. And she manages not to, you know, there's a reason that we didn't talk about Manic Pixie Dream Girl until like Elizabeth Town, right? Sarah Jessica Parker managed to keep mm. that balance really well. And when she fell over, it hurt. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just such a, I'm really endearingly spatially unaware. No, it was, you know, she collapses in these ridiculous high heeled shoes on a runway. And I think there's always like, at least in the TV show, a good sort of undercutting of like, this is ridiculous. And what are we, what do we want? And what about our aspirations? And I can't afford my apartment but I've bought so many shoes in my life and I'm 38 and do I really want kids if I did would I have them by now there's so much in that performance that manages to just about keep it grounded um Mm -hmm. and I'd say Cynthia Nixon is exactly the same like managing to be the sort of sarcastic cynical without being mean like still having a heart and being like incredibly emotional and that tension between being incredibly direct and and just wanting independence but still falling in love and and things not going to plan but ending up in in, in a place of well-being and happiness if not expected and in Brett Martin's book Difficult Men which is about Mm -hmm. golden age peak TV really recommend it he actually puts it in with HBO's programming and The Sopranos and in in the run up to Mad Men and he says like I can't really talk about it in this book because it's kind of the only show that was about women <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the slew of everything else um, but it was like groundbreaking and, and pushed forward and I would say that because it's to do with because it is women being funny those are, those are two things that are often overlooked in terms of great canons of importance or things that are rated highly I think it's only, I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge has sort of turned that around a little bit, but it's still, you know, Fleabag's so worthy because the second season branched into more lofty subjects Mm. (laughs) rather than the first one. So it had, you know, all hinged on the twist. But, and I, I don't know how much of this is just because awards don't really appreciate comedic performances at all. Yeah. But, you know, because it's kind of like classic comedy performances are in their own category they rarely are seen as worthy in their own right yeah that's why it's always crazy when you kind of look at the history of the oscars and then you do see someone who was like who was either nominated or won for like an hour and out comedic performance like the one that i always think like yes that was totally deserving and i can't believe that it was given out was kevin klein in a fish called wonder oh my god yes which is such a big comic performance and he's so good at it and it's so um he creates such a kind of like a perfect character for that role and he's such a great foil for john cleese he's such a good um bully of michael palin (laughs) he's kind of like when he eats the fish and all that sort of stuff and it's something that you kind of can't believe in for a body that is so often dismissive of comedy and just doesn't kind of seem to regard it as something that deserves attention apart from, you know, like when Bridesmaids got Best Supporting Actress for 
uh, Melissa McCarthy got a nomination for that and best original screenplay but like it's it's so rare that you see a comedy get anything like that level of attention from the academy and I think that it, it it's maybe a case of the tail wagging the dog but it certainly is representative of this idea that comedy isn't a thing that needs to be taken seriously because it's people being funny and because it's people being funny that must mean that it's not something that requires a lot of work compared to serious dramatic uh turns which uh, i think is is entirely wrong and you you you, you uh, alluded to him earlier but i remember that was something that um joss whedon said on i think it was the common uh, the commentary for serenity where he was talking about how he cast the, the guy in serenity who's like in that big computer room and is like helping them out was like a comedic actor and he always said that he felt that he liked casting comedic actors in serious roles because comedy seems so much harder that if they're good at doing comedy and they must be able they'll probably be really good at doing something dramatic because it's working very different muscles and like the example that i had of a performance from last year that i felt didn't get the attention that it deserved was florence Pugh in fighting with my family and um, it's an interesting contrast because her other two performances from last year in Little Women and Midsummer um, got way more attention. And she's good in both of those movies, but like I feel like because Fighting With My Family is like a fairly broad but still kind of you know deeply felt um, comedy about wrestling that people don't take it seriously, even though like what she had to go through in order to play the role of Paige of having to kind of like really get into physically great shape so that she could do as much of the stunts as she could herself and to balance, you know, the sense of ambition of someone wanting to be in the WWE and, you know, the ride with the family and still be funny uh, is like as hard, if not harder than, you know, all the stuff that she was doing in Midsummer and Little Women, which it also is kind of a performance that has shades of comedy to it, but it's like not quite as much of an out-and-out uh, comedic performance as she does in Fighting With My Family. Mm. I think there's also something to be said for performances where someone is holding it together. And mm-hmm. I am thinking of Rachel Brashannon. Have I right. said her name wrong? I think it's Brosnahan. Brosnahan, thank you. That's me squishing it together and, and not quite <laughs> reading it properly. Mrs. Maisel, um, who, <laughs> yes, has been has been lauded for her performance in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but has gathered so much attention on that there internet for her part in, and again, Quibi? Quibi? Yeah, uh, Quibi, yeah. Quibi. As a woman with a golden arm. <laughs> And, yeah. like, the thing that struck me about that clip, lots of things struck me about that clip, Ed, but she is giving it her all. She mm. is motivating and emoting. Like, she will not be buried without her golden arm. And, like, it's convincing. And I think that's part of why it feels so camp and ridiculous, is she's not, it's not it, it's unintentionally funny because she's being so serious about it. That is that is acting so hard. That is acting so hard to say any of that with any kind of um, sincerity. I think the thing that uh, a lot of people missed about that clip is that is that Sam Raimi directed that, and that is very much the thing that he goes for. So I think it's intentionally meant to be funny. It's just 
a very weird thing to seek out of context of, you know, this a- adaptation of an old folk tale where uh, set in modern day and with his kind of deliberately very kind of like, like George Miller, someone who is like delights in like an over the top performance and something so kind of strange. Um, but yeah, it's not the sort of thing that really makes sense if you could out of context. I think, yeah, she is performing really well in that clip, even though also the thing that really uh, that that um, clip really says to me is that those shows on Quibi are not really shot to be shown on a phone. <laughs> like It's very clear they shot it like, oh, this is going to be on TV or something, right? And then it's, you know, in kind of like long view, it's like, oh, right, yeah, like most of the frame is missing and it's really awkward how badly all of this stuff looks when you just watch it on a phone. <laughs> Which may be a problem with the entire concept of Quibi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of as well um, uh, of uh, comedic performances, I feel like you know, as you're saying about um, Rachel Brosnahan, I think the the thing that people don't take into account with like a comedic performance is they feel like oh, if you're just being funny, you're not like invested in the character that you know this is something that you can just kind of like shake off and go about your day as opposed to being something that you have to really kind of think about how you're going to perform it and I mean some actors presumably do that they just kind of are just effortlessly funny and they just show up and are just kind of like goofy or whatever and they don't really think about it that much and it's just kind of instinctual for them but I think there are a lot of comedic actors who do put a lot of thought into it and the, the performance I thought of is someone like Sean William Scott in Goon which is a hugely enjoyable hockey comedy where he plays like an enforcer, someone who gets into fights in um, hockey matches. That's like his specific role. And it's a really funny performance. It's a full body performance from him in terms of, you know, the actual skating and the hockey side of things. But just like the way he plays that character is this kind of like real kind of like dumb jock, but someone who has real kind of... um, emotions and real kind of insecurities as well it feels like a performance that is you know in a in a fairer world would be considered for like serious awards contending because not only is there a strong physical component and that's something obviously that like the oscars and everyone loves to awards but it does feel like a full rounded person that he and um the writer jay baruchel have really kind of like brought out Mm. goon is super fun and i think it is one of those where, yeah, performances aren't appreciated because they're comedic. Like I was telling you before we recorded Ed, I also rewatched Wet Hot American Summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's great to see so many people as they're just starting out, um, mm. including Bradley Cooper's film debut. Let's not forget. Yeah. And Paul Rudd, I don't think has ever been better than in that film. I think he <laughs> realised what made him great and has just stuck with that and I'm okay with that I think Janine Garofalo mm. is like a deadpan genius in it yeah and again they're not because performances don't necessarily need to be about like the full roundness of a character I know I was getting all enthused there about Sex and the City that I actually think Carrie and Miranda are very you know dimensional characters and that's a huge amount to do with mm. uh, Cynthia Nixon and Sarah Jessica Parker but I think even just being able to be memorable as a caricature when it's mm-hmm. required is quite refreshing as well and that's just wall to wall wet hot American summer like there's barely a plot there's like zero <laughs> character arc um, it's just 
it's more a kind of a collection of sketches, but more hit hits than misses with sketches as well. So it doesn't, yeah, a performance doesn't necessarily have to be this kind of like resounding kind of character study. Yeah, it can just be being really silly. Mm, yeah, but it's it's about recognizing that a lot of work can go into being very silly. Um, and a lot of thought a lot of thought can go into it as well like uh, you talking about Wet Hot American Summer just reminded me of um, one of my favourite TV shows of all time Strangers with Candy which is oh yes a show that is just people being like over the top caricatures that don't really show any growth (laughs) over the course of the series are constantly just being like ridiculous and doing these kind of like over the top campy or not campy like very much kind of like we're doing a performance you would expect to see on a very melodramatic soap opera um after school special kind of psa thing but it's in a world where people are doing a a gloopy new drug called glint and someone um punts a turtle through a window (laughs) (laughs) um you know this kind of like uh, there's just so many like weird things i remember the first time i i i when i was uh, in sheffield and like in a shared house i would enjoy showing like uh, shows that i had bought on import um from america to um my housemates and i remember showing uh my friend chris strangers with candy for the first time and i've never seen someone laugh harder than in an early episode where Jerry Blank played wonderfully by Amy Sedaris who is just a just one of the great in terms of life talk about people whose entire careers are underrated yeah she's definitely one someone who has uh, who hasn't had the uh, the credits that she deserves there's a scene where someone pulls up in a car and like shouts her name she turns around and as the car pulls into frame someone has been sat on the front of the car as it's driving and he just gets thrown forward through <laughs> the air and it's such an unexpected weird small detail and Chris just was not expecting it and just literally fell off the sofa laughing because he couldn't understand why they would make that choice and why that person would be sat on the car just to get thrown off it and that's kind of the the thing i've really <laughs> i really like about um strange with candies it's a show that clearly in its aesthetics in its tone in those weird little jokes is a show that clearly the the, the makes of it have just completely obsessed over how what's the funniest thing that we can do in this moment Mm. what can we do to jazz up this you know the start to this otherwise um fairly mundane you know beginning to a sequence of someone calling jerry and her kind of then getting into a conversation totally and that kind of level of like attention to detail and collaboration in bringing a performance together whether it be like production design or i mean i think watching the incredibles 2 a few mm-hmm. weeks ago um, yes there is a Disney theme to a lot of my watching because my household has Disney Plus um, uh, okay. I th- like a performance when it's an act of symbiosis between a voice performance and an animation performance mm-hmm. is amazing and I think that's underrated because you're depending on a kind of understanding of an actor from that voice to be sort of like recognisable or warm like there's a reason that Amy Poehler was cast as Joy in Inside Out, yeah. right? And then, but in The Incredibles two, which is again like such a shockingly grown up film mm-hmm. in yeah. terms of its concerns, 
And yet a baby fights a raccoon. So something for everyone. <laughs> but even that, like, you know, I think Craig T. Nelson is as an everyman, but there's something so kind of like, like the design as he gets more and more tired trying to be a full-time mm. dad. And that jealousy and the really kind of complex things that are going on. But that all comes through through a mix of voice and animation. And I think that's incredible to bring it all together when it's not one person emoting. Do you know what I mean? It's a whole team making a performance yeah. come together. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's also true. It's true in the first Incredibles as well with Jason Lee as Syndrome. Like, mm-hmm. I think one of my favourite moments in all of Pixar is when... Um, he's captured Mr. Incredible and then Mr. Incredible doesn't know who he is and so he says and then he kind of goes of course and he kind of like looks down and he goes I am your biggest fan and that's the moment he realises oh it's that kid that I kind of pushed off years ago yeah. and it's such a great vocal turn by him of just kind of letting out that childish kind of like insecurity that's just driven him for his whole life to murder superheroes um, and also just like the you know, if I'm remembering the scene correctly, like there's a there's a subtle change in the lighting as well. His head is moving, like it's it is like a, a full collaborative thing between what Jason Lee is doing as a performer and what all of the animators and the you know the software designers who have made it so that they can do those shifts in lighting and make it seem cinematic in a way that is very hard to do in computer animation. Working together and like providing this like full body thing, um, and yeah, I think also it. it it's it's in no way an underrated performance because literally everyone said oh he should have won an Oscar for it um, at the time but that's something that you see in like the way people talk about Andy Serkis as Gollum slash Smeagol in The Lord of the Rings like that is such such a great combination of his physical performance his vocal performance but also what the team at Weta did to make Gollum feel like a real like person who was there on screen. Yeah, and I, I think that with I think about Marvin in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm, Alan Rickman yeah. as well. Like he's so soft and round and kind of like yeah. the, the kind of opposite of like a slick, sleek, apple looking machine. He's just <laughs> he's just built that way. I guess BB eight actually, whilst we're on the subject of kind of like robots and voice actors and design, mm. I think Ben Schwartz did an excellent job. I I refuse to see Sonic, so I'm not going to go there. But <laughs> to 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 be a convincingly like a robot, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, damn, it's just so cute. Like oh, the bit where like Poe runs over to is like, hey buddy, and then like rubs mm-hmm. his little belly like he's a dog. Ah, oh. <laughs> that's why The Force Awakens is good. <laughs> because of that <laughs> I will be taking no questions at this time <laughs> I, I think um, that also touches on a point I have here which is um, genre performances also don't get um, often don't get considered as like genuine kind of work, acting that requires a lot of work and needs to be taken seriously because if you're in a horror movie or a science fiction movie or a fantasy movie there's that sense of like oh, like, you're not depicting someone going through real things, so therefore it doesn't matter, whereas it's more... I think it's even harder, because you have to convince people of a character's humanity or, you know, at the very least, that they have kind of an essence and a soul whilst they are in fantastical situations. And, you know, um, example I have is, you know, 
the, the, the films themselves aren't good but and that they were a massive disappointment certainly to me but I thought that Martin Freeman was great as Bilbo in the, the three Hobbit movies I think he's so good at conveying that sense of an, an everyman who was living kind of a very quiet unassuming life suddenly being thrust into this great adventure and finding a certain kind of desire for adventure and a certain nobility within himself to go on this quest and to help these people you know do something that he thinks is right and his performance is kind of like the the one thing that kind of carries throughout those movies where even as everything else is getting like incredibly like terrible (laughs) increasingly terrible uh he is like such a strong core for those movies that you know you're still kind of like ah this is this is kind of holding together a little bit and then you know battle of five armies starts and it's like oh right he's knocked out and now it's just cgi and i don't care that legolas is running up falling stairs this is all nonsense Mm. and then also yeah just to bring it back to george miller i feel like a performance that i dearly love and that um makes me tear up just fearing thinking about it is james cromwell in the babe movies mainly he's not in the second one so much because uh he falls down a well and then spends most of the movie horribly injured but hey Um, he he falls the fuck down that well ed mm -hmm. (laughs) like that's a performance that he brings such warmth and love and affection for a pig that you really do believe it and when he (laughs) when he sings to him and he's dancing and uh, the music swells it's just such a wonderful moment and so much of that is down to how much you believe in farmer hoggett as a character and how much his just overwhelming love and belief in this tiny pig uh is kind of like driving him and it's just I just think it's such a wonderful performance. It's one of those things that can so easily be written off because it's a farmer in a movie about pigs that wants pig that wants to be a sheepdog, <laughs> and so much of the movie is just animals looking at each other and their mouths being manipulated <laughs> digitally. But um, I feel like he he is such a key part of why that movie works, why it deservedly got a Best Picture nomination, was like a huge hit. You're so right. For a film that, again, wackadoodle, as wackadoodle premises go, <laughs> mm-hmm. he's so understated. Like, yeah. it, it could be really easy to go for some big kind of thumping, like, well, Mrs. Hoggett, I love this pig, but he doesn't. <laughs> like, you know, there's no need to do that because you're right, he does believe in this pig and he's so real and quiet and it's all going on under the surface, but everything he does, like the closest he gets is singing, oh my God, I'm not going to cry. When he's, when he's singing that song to, to babe when the pig's depressed. Like, I think it's one of the best best depictions of depression as well. Because that poor pig, he's like, what's the point? They're going to eat me. And then, and then he sings him a song. What am I talking about, Ed? Really looped up and cooped up. But it is, and I think so often we talk about performances and it's about, like, oh, who can be, like, the most epic? And, and sometimes that's really fun, right? Like, there's the, that's... Um, incredible line reading that Al Pacino does that's going around Twitter at the moment in celebration of the big man's birthday um mm-hmm. your ass and your head's right up it like that's great <laughs> sometimes we do want like silliness and and full blown but it's like it's the Daniel Day-Lewis dilemma for me like I think mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis is like such an incredible actor when he's quiet like yeah and and can do and, and does all this like m- minute 
very precise kind of vocal work and and like barely any expression at all like you look at his work with Scorsese for example Age of Innocence mm-hmm. num, 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 yes please Gangs of New York well it's mainly the moustache isn't it and then mm-hmm. with, with PTA you know uh, There Will Be Blood again Tash and then uh, Phantom's Red ding 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 Emily mentions Phantom's <laughs> Red again everyone finish your drink maybe maybe Daniel Day-Lewis just shouldn't have a moustache because then he's, he's much more subtle and I think really engaging but that's it Sometimes the the best acting is is not seeming like you're doing a lot at all. Mm. Yeah, I, whenever I think of of um, Gangs of New York, which I haven't seen in a while, but whenever I think of it, I think of that opening um, fight scene, the first twenty minutes, which is so so good and so like dramatic, so having all these guys with axes <laughs> like squaring off on the street, although not as good as um, the similar scene that you see at the start of Kung Fu Hustle. Um, but I also like the thing that I just think of with his performance is him going whoopsie daisy it's just kind of like that's a bit it's a, bit, it's a little cartoonish isn't it Dan uh, you, could, you could wind it in a little bit and with There Will Be Blood I think he's most effective when he's being quiet in that movie um, which he is for a lot of it <laughs> but then uh, the thing that everyone remembers is the final scene which is one of the reasons why weirdly it became like a meme when the movie came out because I remember like Saturday Night Live did a sketch about it and I was like this doesn't seem like the kind of movie that would usually be um, the centrepiece of a sketch on Saturday Night Live but I guess you know people talking about milkshakes is pretty fun yeah yeah I think that there is kind of a pleasure as well in big performances like obviously we earlier we were talking about Jack Nicholson in The Witches of Eastwick which is such like an over the top performance but it so perfectly suits the movie that it's in and another one um, that I think of, I think, you know, it, it definitely isn't underrated because the movie has obviously been, you know, has such a lasting impact and people still cite it as like one of the greats. But The Shining, his performance in The Shining, I think is just so perfectly suited to the tenor of what Stanley Kubrick was going for with that movie and why it's crazy to think that when the movie came out, it was nominated for a bunch of Razzies, including worst perfor- worst actor for him in that role. Uh, and I also want to. I think Shelley Duval also was nominated for Worst Actress, which is ridiculous because she's fantastic in that movie. But it reminds me of a. Um, there was a, a story I read ages ago about um, Steven Spielberg and Stanley Kubrick having lunch after either after The Shining came out or after Kubrick had shown Spielberg an early cut, and he asked him what he thought of. Nicholson's performance and Spielberg basically said he thought it was terrible or that he just didn't get it he didn't understand what he was doing and Kubrick just said what do you think of James Cagney and he says I always thought James Cagney was like really over the top and Kubrick was like well I think James Cagney is one of the greatest actors of all time and therefore and that's why Nicholson's doing great work in this movie it really is down to sometimes just like your own aesthetic appreciation for what someone can do and as as a director you know I can't really think of many movies that Spielberg made where he wanted actors to kind of go to that big place whereas I feel like Kubrick was always acting on kind of such a level of intensity throughout his career like if you go from The Shining back to Doctor Strangelove and everything that Peter Sellers is doing as Doctor Strangelove which is such a huge over-the-top performance um, or you know forward even to you know some of the supporting turns in um, Eyes Wide Shut like there is definitely uh, an entire artistic sensibility tied around just 
how big can a performance go without breaking the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of a very delicate balance to make. So we'll end this episode, as we end all our episodes, with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I've got the latest offering from Philosophy Tube, Oliver Thorne, and it is called... I've forgotten. Hang on. (laughs) Is it like Beauty and Ugly Times? Beauty and Ugly Times, yes, thank you. Little brackets, sick brackets. Yes, Beauty and Ugly Times. I always think um, Oliver's videos are really interesting, even if I don't always agree with them. I think he's got some cracking points and, you know, the production value, my, my. And I know you've uh, recommended his work on here before, Ed, and mm. um, I watch a lot of his stuff and I think, yeah, he's got a nice, I think it's nice to, to his video essays aren't just kind of essays, like he plays around with the format a lot. Um, but partly I, I found this like incredibly like a, a really good comforting watch and also very mm. educational he also references a video that that everyone should watch I think Folding Ideas most recent um, I Can't Stop Watching Contagion uh, yes. which was going to be my one. recommendation until I saw this and this is it and I was like oh there we go two birds huh? one lockdown <laughs> yeah absolutely amazing and as uh, as he says, it, this isn't a video essay; it's a raw nerve. Um, so bear with that going in mind. But yes, so maybe I don't know. In terms of order, you could watch that one first, and then Ollie's. I don't know. It'll take you about an hour, all in all. Um, but yeah, I, I found them interesting and comforting, uh, if only to sort of reassure how kind of nuts I'm feeling at the moment (laughs) how about you Ed what have you got I am going to recommend uh, another um, it's not really a video essay but it's kind of in that kind of sphere I guess on YouTube I've been watching a lot of videos by a guy called Jim Sterling who is a video games reviewer journalist who's been making videos for you know over a decade now and is very very entertaining Uh, I'm going to recommend specifically a video he did uh, a couple of years ago called When Jim Sterling Was Sued for $10 Million by Digital Homicide, which is him talking about how he was sued by a company that makes games on Steam by his um, account, by his reckoning and by a lot of people's reckoning some very bad games on Steam, who then filed a truly insane lawsuit against him. And it's a really fun watch where he kind of details his feud with this studio and the details of the lawsuit they filed against him which as i just said were just it was just completely ridiculous and it's it's this really entertaining but informative kind of look at a certain kind of vaguely fascistic mindset of just someone thinking that you can stifle someone's ability to speak freely about what they think about someone's work and the lengths that this one person did to to jim sterling so yeah so that's uh, on youtube and i'll put links to that as well as to the uh ollie thorne and uh, uh dan olson videos that emily mentioned in the description if people want to check them out i think yeah in total take you about an hour and a half about the title the length of the movie to watch all three uh, but it'll be well worth your time if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm spotify all the usual places rate us reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me bye